your reality is spiritual. His truth is his truth. And if we can align with God's reality, we will finally be living by reality. So we've been looking at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, which begins with his testing in the wilderness, right? And I'm sure you've noticed I've gotten stuck on the second temptation because it's so loaded with transforming truth that I just can't move on yet. I started with like 30 pages of notes and now I've got, I don't know, 50, 60 pages of notes. We won't necessarily do them all, but I'm going to keep teaching this until I'm released that we've done what he wants us to do. What we've been seeing already we see a pattern in the temptations. We're seeing that already. And the pattern is not random. We have an adversary. He's real. And he attacks the same way that he came against Jesus in the wilderness, which was allowed by his father, is the same way that the enemy, our adversary, attempts to come against us, which is allowed by our father because he loves you, because he has plans for you. Because he's nuts about you and he is going to accomplish things for your joy, for his kingdom through you. And we see that in this pattern, the first temptation is a temptation at the level of the physical, at the level of the body. The enemy does try and is perfectly willing to take advantage of your circumstances to bring trial against you. And he wants to use that to slander you in the courts of heaven. His whole intention, he wants to disqualify you, right? But he cannot do that. The blood of Jesus covers us and he will not be able to disqualify you. Okay, then I think it was last week we first started looking at the second temptation. And this is a temptation that comes at the level of soul, which is what? It's your mind, it's your thoughts, it's your reasonings, it's your philosophy, it's your desire. It's what your soul is what makes you who you are. In other words, it's God's design in you. It's God's perfect design in you. No mistake, nothing random. And the enemy's attack against that is not random either. And then, of course, the third one, which we'll be looking at coming up, but I'll just put out the whole pattern, okay? The third one is an attack at the level of the spirit. It's at the level of worship. Why? Are you what you are? Why do you do what you do? You do it unto who? That's spirit. That's at the level of worship. Now, what I told you last week, and it's so critical to start here this morning, is the recognition that the real warfare, the real place of warfare that comes against you, that tries to keep you from your purposes, is the attack at the level of the soul. It's really where it all happens. The reasonings of the mind. You go through the New Testament, the letters are the words of Jesus, okay? And it's full of the renewal of your mind. Why is that? That's because that is really where the battle is. That's really where it all is. Do you want to be one who fulfills all that the Lord has planned for you? Do you want to be powerful in who you are, your identity? You understand your calling is your identity. You understand that, right? God never calls you, never asks you to go out and do something or accomplish something that doesn't come out of who you are, who he's made you to be. He says, be for me. And when you are for him, genuinely your identity and who he's made you to be, you are automatically advancing the kingdom of God within you. So we're going to dig at that. 
I believe the Lord wants us to have more knowledge, more gold in terms of how we have victory at the level of our soul, the way that we think. And this is so good this morning. Every week I say, you know, this is building up for next week. And it's even true this week, but at least in my opinion, God's truth gets more and more powerful. It's more and more powerful in a way that you can apply it as we keep stepping forward through these weeks. I hope that's the experience you're having because that's the experience I'm having in my time with him as I prepare. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. This is going to look unrelated. We're going to find out really quick that it's absolutely related. It's absolutely the heart of the matter. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, if you're turning in your Bibles, you can keep your finger there. We're going to keep going. But I just want to ask some questions to get us thinking here. What is the flavor? This is warning that if the salt loses its flavor, how do you return the flavor? It becomes worthless. Well, what flavor are we talking about? You are the salt of the earth. What is the flavor of the kingdom of God that you are? Do you know? It goes on and says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is the light? What's the light that you're not supposed to cover? The flavor that you're not supposed to lose? Isn't that the question? What's different? What's set apart? This is all about, (laughs) this is all about what the adversary wants to come against in you. And he wants to do it at the level of your soul. He wants to come into and be the Lord of your reasonings. He wants to be the one that establishes the way your soul thinks what you aspire for, and how you think things work. You see, because if he can do that, then the salt has lost its flavor. And the light is really not light at all. Because the light of God is that light that you read about that pierces the darkness, that the darkness cannot overcome. Go to verse 17 with me. Here it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until it is all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I struggle with that one because what just happened there? Did Jesus suddenly become completely preoccupied that you're able to behave right or fulfill <laughs> or fulfill the law? Did that suddenly become the entire center of his attention even though he knows that he fulfilled the law for you? That his blood covered you? He's absolutely certain that you cannot fulfill the law except through his son, right? Except through himself. I guess he's the one speaking here. So what's going on here? And we really see it in the next verse. The next verse, verse 20, we're going to start there. And when we're all done this morning, we're going to return back. And I promise we're going to see it differently by the end of today. Okay, the next verse says, 
For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we have a third question, right? What's the righteousness of the Pharisees? What is that righteousness that you must exceed if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that the question? How do you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? I'm going to say it's of critical importance that we have some understanding of what that righteousness is and how we exceed it, or we're out of luck. That's what that just told us. Of course, we're not out of luck. (laughs) So let's do this. Go with me. We're going to look at the second temptation. Okay, and we're going to show how there's so much in this temptation, in the devil coming against Jesus in that temptation. There is so much there about being victorious in your life, having the blessing of God and the kingdom advancing in your life. It's all right here. This is where the warfare happens. So go to Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 5, and this is the temptation. Then the devil... You remember what that word is, diabolos, false accuser, slanderer. So he's trying to falsely accuse Jesus. He wants to disqualify him. He's trying to slander him. And then he's hoping that Jesus is going to participate and so therefore prove his slander true. And so it says, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down. And then he slings scripture at Jesus. Our enemy knows scripture. And he says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So look, let's just review very briefly. What did we just read? This is the promise of the father that he is capable and he will take you all the way through to the end of your calling, of your identity. He is capable of accomplishing everything that he planned for you before your first day began. It's a promise that you have that protection at the level of the soul. Why do I say at the level of the soul? Look, what's the devil saying here? He's saying, get for yourself a sign That what the Father says about you or his relationship concerning you is true. You better test him out. He's saying, test it out. Get yourself a sign. He's saying, you better make sure that what the Father tells you in his word concerning you and his planned ministry for you, your ministry is your life, right? And your life is your ministry. You better prove that because you better make that align with the reasonings of this world. Right? If that's true, you should be able, I should be able to take you up to the pinnacle of the temple. You should be able to jump off. And now you've proved that you've shown it in this world. You can say, well, that's true now. Isn't that what's going on? Now we know that's what's going on because of Jesus' response. Jesus says back to him, it's written again. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, you're not going to sling one scripture at me and tear me out of the will of my father. You see, I know my father Not just these words that you can sling at me. I know the nature of my father. I know my father. So he says, it is written again, you shall not tempt. That's the same thing as test the Lord your God. Now, if you notice whenever you're reading the scriptures, whenever Jesus speaks, (laughs) he seems to do a very good job of letting everyone know exactly what we're talking about here. 
How often are you reading when they ask him a question or there's a conversation going on or they're testing him in some way and then he says something and you're thinking, well, he's not even talking about the same topic as the rest of them. It's because he's the only one that knows what the real topic is and he knows exactly what the enemy's trying to do. The enemy's trying to get him to test his father and make his father align with his reasonings, his philosophies that go on in his soul. Well, thank God that our Savior has perfect philosophies. He's one with his Father. He only does what he sees the Father doing. So he's not going to do this because he doesn't see his Father doing this. Does that make sense? That's his victory in this trial. You only test things that you're not sure about, right? If you are absolutely certain there is no need for a test, He's not going to test his father. He's absolutely certain about the heart of his father, about his father's capability, and about the love between them and their shared love for you. He doesn't need to test that. So what I want to do, okay, here's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to go to another place that at first glance is going to look unrelated, but I'm going to show you the warfare against your soul in Jesus's life. You see, because you understand, the only reason God allows trials in your life, it's not because he likes you to be miserable or have to go through hard things. It's because he plans to build the kingdom of God in you. He lets you go through those trials because he is making a stronghold for the living spirit of God in you, the kingdom of God in you. You see, every time you pass a test, every time you can be tested, right? Every time you're tested and you show that the enemy's slander is not true concerning you, you've made a stronghold for the spirit of God. You've made a stronghold where the spirit of God's ministry through you is unlimited, is not in bondage, is free to accomplish all God wants you to accomplish. It should be exciting because that means if you're going through trials and you know you trust that your father's heart is good, that should be encouraging. You know exactly what the Lord is up to. He's building the kingdom of God in you. He's making strongholds so that you move forward in power. That's what he wants for you. Okay, so go with me to Mark chapter 8, and we're just going to look at Jesus right at the beginning, verse 1. And see here, I'm going to tell you what we're going to see before we see it. We're going to see a contrast. We're going to contrast Jesus, in other words, one who has no struggle in the area of his reasonings. He has no philosophies that stand contrary to the knowledge of God. He is aligned with his Father. There's nothing contrary to the knowledge of God in Jesus. And we're going to see that. And that's going to be contrasted with those that have reasonings that are contrary to the knowledge of God. How many times in the scriptures do you read about that our freedom, that our victory, that our salvation, that our success, it's all in the knowledge of God. It's knowing him, right? It's never a prescription, it's never some way or we could never do church good enough or there's nothing that you can do that makes that happen. Amen? It's the knowledge of God. Do you understand that you cannot know God and stay the same? It's impossible. Knowing him is the transformation. We're going to see that here, okay? Look in verse 1 with me, Mark chapter 8. And you know this story. 
It says, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Now, I want you to notice that before we even read on at all. It started, Jesus' words start at, I have compassion on the multitude. I just want you to hold that. It's going to be a detail that's important in a minute. And he says, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Now that's Jesus. Jesus is moved with compassion. And the disciples answer in verse 4. Now you're already going to start to see a contrast, okay? And it's going to get more and more powerful as we go. You're going to see that in verse 4 it says, Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? So what? They're going, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Even if we had the means to get the food, how are we going to get the food? Now, I have to give you a context detail. I know you know this. I'm just going to remind you. We might say we don't know for sure the time frames, but either just days before or like a week or maybe at most a few weeks before, they just got done feeding 5,000 people. They watched Jesus from a few loaves and a few fish. They watched him feed 5,000 people. They just got done witnessing this. Now here they are again in the same situation. And what the disciples have to say is, how can we satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? You see, they have reasonings (laughs) that are contrary to the knowledge of God. They are contrary to the heart of the Father. In fact, their reasonings stand in opposition because they have actually witnessed the heart of the Father. And yet they have a worldly stronghold in their head. They have strongholds at the place of their soul that says, how could the Father be sufficient in this case? I see now, (laughs) we're going to talk more about this in just a minute, but I want to keep moving through the scripture a little bit. Look at our Jesus. Watch what he does. Do you think that he stops and says, oh, we should stop and have a teaching. Let me explain to the disciples. They're obviously confused. They've seen this before. Let me stop and tell them how how the heart of the Father works. He doesn't do that. He moves matter-of-factly. Watch him. In verse 5, he asks them, how many loaves do you have? (laughs) He doesn't even blink. He doesn't even break stride. You understand? Imagine yourself. He's dealing with a crowd of 4,000 people here. He's got his hands full. I'm glad that I don't have 4,000 in here right now. But I don't get the impression he's breaking a sweat. I would be. And he just says, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. You see, he's just moving forward. Why is he just moving forward? Even when his ministry team, (laughs) his ministry team is not exactly on board. But he's not worried. He's just moving forward. Why can he do that? He's passed his trial. He has a renewed mind. And I don't believe Jesus had to renew his mind. We have to renew our mind. He was faithful to live out the pattern as our example that you go through trial and temptation and you pass those tests to make a stronghold for God. He walked through that. Now, we have to renew our mind to get to that point, okay? But that's why he can do that. He doesn't have things that are contrary to the knowledge of God in his way. 
So he just moves forward. He says, so they ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. They had seven large baskets of leftover fragments. You see, the disciples started at the place of lack. How could we possibly do this? We don't have what we need. And Jesus, Jesus says, we don't lack anything. And he takes up seven baskets of leftovers. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. I just want to talk about this for a minute, and this is going to get better and better, but you understand there's two ways that you can look at the acts of God. There might be more than two. God's put on my heart to tell you two ways, okay? One way is that God acts his acts that break into our world, the will of heaven being done here on earth as it is in heaven, right? His acts can be viewed as one-time, miraculous, extraordinary things that are a sign that point to something. That's one way to view it. And that's obviously how the disciples were viewing it. They just saw this. They just saw the nature of the Father acting. And then they have the same struggle a few days or a week later or something, they have exactly the same struggle. Do you think that they doubted that they witnessed what they witnessed? I don't think so. I think their mind was not renewed. Do you see that? The revelation of God in their life did not renew their mind. They were seeing it as one-time acts, miraculous things that break in, and then tomorrow I can have the same anxiety and the same fear over the same problem as if nothing was revealed about the Father's heart. You see, another way you look at it, which is the way Jesus looks at it, obviously, is that God's acts are the revelation of who he is. You see, they're not signboards that point to the revelation, they are the revelation themselves. God's acts are the revelation of his love for you. And when you see God's acts through you to others, it is the revelation of his powerful kingdom, his love, his heart, through you to a world that needs that. It is the revelation. It's not a sign. God's acts are the revelation. So I'm just going to reiterate this because it's so important that you have this before we move into the next thing, which makes it even more clear. There's two ways we view reality. One is, is there are extraordinary one-time events that merely point at God. In other words, we shouldn't expect that to happen again. The other is an image of an advancing kingdom of God from within you. And that says that God's acting is just according to his nature. It is just him being who he is. In other words, it should renew our mind. It should absolutely change our expectation of what's going to happen tomorrow. We could keep our worldly philosophies that are limited by the adversary's power in this world, or we can renew our mind and the kingdom can advance in us and we can begin to operate from the kingdom realm with the Holy Spirit in us. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Jesus didn't say to himself, I'm about to do a wondrous, miraculous thing here. I know that he wasn't thinking that. He didn't say that. He simply acts according to the knowledge of his father. Let me put it this way. I think this is good. 
you understand that what we think is miracles, our spiritual audience is not amazed. (laughs) Okay? The ones that hang out in the throne room of God, the ones who have seen his glory with their eyes in ways that we've not yet the ones who saw him create the universe, who were part of all of that, they're not surprised or shocked by God's ability. They don't have worldly reasonings that limit their ability to completely throw their faith in God and what he's capable of and what his heart is. Even the adversary knows the Father's loving heart toward you. He's not surprised when the Father loves you. Not at all. You see, to us, these are strange, crazy, incredible things. Why? Because we have reasonings that are contrary to the knowledge of God. If you're doubting me, make sure you come next week because we're going to look specifically at a bunch of the scripture that makes it very, very clear that our problem is that we have reasonings that are contrary to the knowledge of God. Jesus simply executes the will of heaven. That's it. He simply does what the Father is doing. And he walks forward without doubt. He simply walks forward and does what he sees the Father doing. Do you know that that's the stronghold for the Holy Spirit that he wants to make in you? He wants us to become a people, actually what you already are. He wants you to become what he has already declared that you are. People who just walk forward because you know him because you know the heart of the Father. You know that that lacks limitation. Now, of course, we have no shortage of reasonings, strongholds that need to be pulled down. Maybe I should speak for myself. I want to tell you a quick story. Hopefully, I'll make this quick. This is a story about Sandra and I and how we've come to know him. I'm not going to pick on you. <laughs> so... How long ago were we in Trinidad? 11 years ago, 12, longer, 13. We were in Trinidad, and we actually affectionately call that our wilderness because it was, because it's true. (laughs) It was a terrible time in our life, and it was allowed by God. It was absolutely God's plan to have us become what he's declared we already are. Happened for us there. I don't want to get into details so this becomes too long, but I mean, I worked really hard to get a job I really wanted, and then I was fired. Actually, I, I can't even encapsulate. The time of trial was, it's, um, we look back at it, and it's, we know that it's the glory of God that we're still alive. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And we watched God take us from that time to a life that was far more blessed, that was beyond what we could ever imagine walking in power with him, being blessed in the physical needs, the first temptation, growing in the soul needs, knowing him in ways that made us powerful through that. Now, here's what I'm getting at. That's just the intro. The real story is this. I think about five years ago it was, bad at time frames, I was doing this huge remodel project for a friend of ours down in the Springs, like knock out a wall and build a whole extension onto a kitchen and stuff like that. It's a huge project, but I also had a day job and a side job, and I was doing that, and I was working myself to the bone trying to make ends meet, fill the gap. And so it was terrible. It was way up in North Colorado Springs. So what it meant was was that I was never home. (laughs) She didn't see me much. And these friends of ours loved us, so 
what they did was at the completion of the project, they gave us a gift. They gave us a stay in Monument. And Jonah had just been born, right? It was our first time away together where Jonah was not with us. I mean, it was weird. We were sitting across the table and it was like, hi, I remember you. And we were actually talking about real things instead of the next problem. And we started talking about the deep things. We came to the realization that God was putting the same thing on both of our hearts, which was that I should resign my job and pursue something else that's honoring to him, that's back into ministry, things like that. Although she always outclasses me. She always has more faith than I do. And her stance was, okay, we both know it, so resign your job. Get her done. (laughs) And my stance was, well, now wait a second. We have a bunch of ducks to get in a row. You see, one thing I've learned is that if the Spirit moves her, she's going. Which, if you're married to her, that means so are you. (laughs) Now, I've learned over the years that I just kind of, anymore, I've seen the goodness of God so much that I just sort of put my seatbelt on, even though I know it's going to get rocky before it gets better. I just sort of put my seatbelt on and start looking for the blessing. <laughs> okay. You see, my point here is I, I had all these ducks to get in a row. I had, um, I thought, boy, you know, I've got to get that side business. It's got to be way better than it is before we just trash that income. And I had all of these reasonings. As if I didn't live through that season when we were in Trinidad, when we were in our wilderness. You see, it didn't renew my mind, at least let me say not completely. Now, we were able to do it. So I trust that God had renewed my mind enough that we were able to be obedient after I delayed it for a year and created true misery. See, if my mind had been completely renewed, if I understood the heart of the Father completely from his previous acts in my life, we would have just went and we would have spared all that misery. We would have been moving in power. She was ready. I needed some misery to move me there. (laughs) Now when I see that she hits these phases where she's starting to get a little crazy, like this doesn't make any sense. This is a little scary. You see now why I'm kind of like, ooh, I see that. Okay, are we, uh, are we moving somewhere? <laughs> I'm ready. Don't make me miserable. <laughs> what should have been informing me? All the stuff that I could see, all those reasonings, or the acts of God from the past? That was my problem. It was a soul problem, right? I had a thinking problem. I was operating contrary to the knowledge of God, at least somewhat. Okay, this gets really good now. We're continuing in our main passage, Mark 8, verse 11. So remember our context. What you're about to read next immediately follows the narrative of him feeding that crowd without breaking a sweat. This is what follows next. And I found... We're in the Gospel of Mark. If you read the commentaries on the Gospel of Mark, the scholars like to say that Mark was not concerned about chronology. He was concerned about accuracy. Well, what I observe when I look in the Gospel of Mark is that he is concerned about the chronology of his writing. He's actually purposely put things in a chronology because he is about giving us a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's moving you through renewing your mind, knowing him. So it's, 
it's not an order that doesn't make, make any sense. It's not like he's just concerned that each little thing is accurate and by themselves. But he's put them in an order because he's revealing Jesus. Okay? So it's not a mistake that this comes just next. And you're going to see why I'm using this passage now with the second temptation of Jesus. And here in verse 11, it says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. So he feeds this crowd, and, what, and the way that this gospel is written to reveal Jesus, the very next thing it says, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. Why do they dispute with him? Well, he gets some insight. It goes on and says, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. You see that? They come out and they say, show us a sign. Why are they doing that? They're hearing what's going on. They're hearing the rumors and people are coming and they're saying, they're saying, you should see what this guy's doing. Now, does that renew their mind? <laughs> no, they come to Jesus to dispute with him. They come saying, show us a sign. We need to see this. Because what? You recognize that's exactly the same temptation as the devil with Jesus. They want to test him. Now listen to the response it gives to Jesus, okay? In verse 12, But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And you should know generation can mean, well, it can mean generation. Perfectly acceptable translation of that is also this people group. You guys. Could be translated, you guys. No sign will be given to you guys. Does that make you scratch your head a little? How could Jesus possibly say no sign's going to be given to you? He already gave him signs. In fact, all he ever does is walk around and do signs. He raises the dead. He opens blind eyes. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He frees people from demonic oppression. He's only ever continually a sign if you have eyes to see a sign. And yet he says, I'm telling you something. You guys get nothing. You're going to get no sign. You guys, what's going on there? You see, we've already talked about this. Are you catching it? He's not a sign. Do you remember I told you, pay attention to it. His words started at, I have compassion, right? That's where his words started. I have compassion. You see, God does not sit around proving himself. He doesn't sit there with the Holy Spirit and Jesus in the throne room and say, we better form a committee because we're going to really need to come up with some good proofs so that these people will believe us and come along with us. He doesn't prove himself. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he doesn't go around trying to figure out or come up with the signs that will prove to people. He's not doing that. When he fed that crowd, that was not a sign. He did that because he had compassion. That was the love. It's not a sign of the love it is the love. You see, when he heals someone who's sick, that's not a sign. That is the love of the father. The love of a father who says, I want everyone to be whole. When he frees people from demonic oppression, that's not a sign. That's the father's heart acting in love because he says, I want you to be free. So that's how he can say it. That's how he can say, you get no sign. 
I will not provide for you a sign. I will continue to act according to the heart of the Father, and you will continue to be blind to renew your mind to see how it really works in the spiritual realm. That my Father is good, His nature is unchanging, He will always love, and He will always advance His kingdom in you. For those of you who have eyes to see, you think of scriptures where it says, For he who has, more will be given. And he who does not have, even that little bit you have, it'll be taken away. You see, it's all about eyes. They don't have the eyes. They come testing. Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. They come testing. All they're interested in is testing because their reasonings are contrary to the mind of God. You know, he could have done a sign for them and it wouldn't have helped How many of you have had God act in a way in your life where you are absolutely certain you know that God acted because he loves you and that was your breakthrough? Okay, do you realize, think of that testimony that you're thinking of, or if you have like a thousand of them, think of all thousand. Think of that and you can imagine you could take that to two different people. You could take that testimony that you know that you know that you know and you could tell it to one person And they will say, show me. I don't believe it till I see it. I I need to see that. Show me something. And you could take that testimony to another person and they would go, wow, I know that I am hearing the truth of the nature of my Father in heaven when you tell me that story of what he did for you. How then shall I renew my mind so that I think rightly, so that I'm of faith Instead of testing, he did not provide a sign. He represented the nature of his father. He merely does what he sees the father doing. And Christ in you, the spirit of God in you, screams to merely do what the father is doing. That's why he taught them to pray. How shall you pray? Pray that the will of heaven be done on earth as it is in heaven. That wasn't a metaphor. He really wants that to be your reality. He wasn't telling a parable. They went to him and said, how shall we pray? And he said, pray like this, right? You see, you run into people in ministry who are people who desire to be in what they conceive of as ministry where they think, I'd love to be a person who was performing miraculous signs. See, what do they they desire? They desire the signs. They're saying, I'd love to be a person that that God would give me the signs. Do you know who goes around performing the will of the kingdom of God? Who actually operates in the power? Are not people who seek after a sign. They're people who have the knowledge of God. They understand who he is and they merely walk forward in a faith of who he is. They're not looking to perform signs. They're looking to free the person that's standing in front of them. Does that make sense? I don't want a sign. I want to see you healthy because that's the Father's heart. I don't want a sign. I want to see you free from the oppression, from the spiritual realm that is oppressing you or your family. That's what I want to see because the Father's heart in me wants that for you. I'm going to do this one quickly. Go with me to John chapter 5 and verse 31. Jesus speaking. Apparently, I really like his words. (laughs) And he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know 
that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. And he's talking about John the Baptist here. We see this just next. He says, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Speaking of John, Jesus says, he was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What light? You see, we're going full circle. What's the flavor? What is the light, the flavor that you're not supposed to lose, the light that you're not supposed to hide? Keep your finger there because we're going to keep reading in that passage, but turn to Matthew 3 and verse 1. This is the light. Listen, what was the message of John the Baptist? It was, it says here, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, so here's the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know why that message is so remarkable? That's an all new message. There was no repenting before this. You understand that? They didn't repent. They atoned. (laughs) There was no hope. They didn't fool themselves into thinking they could change their mind and actually operate from the power of a kingdom realm where they were able to be capable of things that man has never been capable of for thousands of years. To live the righteousness of God? They never even conceived that would be possible. They had continual and continual and continual atonement. When John the Baptist came and said, repent, said, change your mind. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. Change your mind so that you become a kingdom thinker. That was new. Now I'm going to show you, go to Matthew 4.17. Now this is Jesus, okay? This is Jesus after he passes his trials, his temptations in the wilderness. And this is the result of passing his temptations and being filled without measure with the Holy Spirit, he comes and says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that message sound familiar? It's the same message and it's utterly new. The new in this message is that the kingdom of God is here now. That's why he told them to pray that way. The power of the throne room of God is here. We are to be carriers of a kingdom where his will is done in this world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light in a dark place. Repent. Change your mind so that you are operating from a kingdom realm. You understand that is a soul warfare. The last thing the enemy ever wants you to do is get to a place where you believe your father instead of test him. As long as you're testing, you are not walking in the power of God. As long as you're testing, you are not advancing the kingdom of God. You are falling to the enemy's temptation to have his strongholds in the place of your soul in the place of your thinking, in what you aspire for. Those are strongholds for the enemy that keep you from just believing, walking in belief. Okay, back to verse 36 there in John 5, and it goes on and says, but I have a greater witness than John's. What's that? What's the greater witness? For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me. Now notice those words. Do they bear witness of something? Or do they, do they bear witness? Do they point to something? They bear witness of him. 
They bear witness of me. They bear witness of who I am. And Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus in you is the kingdom. It's not a sign that points to the kingdom. It's not a test. It bears witness of the reality of the kingdom in you. Actually, and then skip to verse 39 with me. Actually, no, don't do that. Go back to, sorry about that. We, we really shouldn't skip stuff. This, this is Jesus' words here. <laughs> Goes on and says that the Father has sent me. And then verse 37, it says, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. You see the soul problem? That's the warfare of his soul. What's the problem? They don't have his word abiding in him, in them, in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Now now listen, here's really coming. Verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. What's he saying? You go to the scriptures because you think if you know the scriptures, you think if you operate by just what's printed in the word of God, that you have life there. And he says, but those words testify of me. And it goes in verse 40 and says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have that life. It's the reality of the words. You see, when Jesus overcomes his trials, he doesn't overcome them because he knows how to quote a scripture. I hear people all the time say, just pray the scriptures. And look, I'm not against that. Pray the scriptures. It's the word of God. Don't be offended in this moment. I'm just saying that's not where the power is. The power is in knowing him. Those scriptures, the reason you can pray them scriptures and there's power in that is because you know him. Because you have a renewed mind that thinks from the kingdom realm. You don't have reasonings and philosophies of this world anymore. You think the way your father thinks. Your mind is not contrary to God, but rather you share the mind of Christ. That's a whole different way of thinking, let me tell you. When you win that warfare, when you win the warfare at the place of the soul, and you say, I'm going to think like my father thinks, and I'm going to love, I'm going to go out into my world, and I'm going to do what I see him doing, because I'm going to be a part of his love. That's a renewed mind, okay? That is completely contrary to this world. And that is the only source of your power, of your victory, of your success in this world. There is nothing else. Which brings us full circle. I'll just wrap up with this. Actually, I have one more thing to say. (laughs) This message is too good today. It's too important. You understand, we go around thinking, ooh, I'd like to see the kingdom of God break out. I'd love to see the awesomeness begin to happen. I'd love to see God's glory just revealed. You know, to violate the laws of the natural and come do what is mind-blowing. Let me say this well, Lord. You understand that our fallen state is what's abnormal. You understand that? So when we're praying for the kingdom of God, God, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven, We're asking for the normal that Jesus restored through his spilled blood. You understand that? We're not asking for the miraculous. Listen, according to the reasonings of our mind, the philosophies that torment and poison our soul from this broken, fallen place and the wounds you have sustained, 
Our reasonings are poisoned. We think we're asking for something miraculous or crazy or abnormal. We're not. Do you understand that? We're asking God to restore the normal. The revelations of God in your past should be renewing your mind to inform your future. It's a new normal. It brings us back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, where we started. Jesus speaking says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, unless you bring back (laughs) the new normal, in other words, you search the script, what's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? If If we can just figure this out, if we can get a formula, if we can practice things right, if we can have a righteousness without relationship, a righteousness that really requires no faith at all, that was their righteousness. You understand that was new? That was a new phenomenon. I'm not the best historian, but I can tell you that it was like just previous to Jesus' generation was when the rabbinical law system was starting up. The heaping of laws on people's heads in order to have a righteousness of God. That was brand new. That was a brand new problem, really. This was the environment Jesus came into. And he says, unless you exceed that righteousness, well, what's exceeding that righteousness? It's the renewal of your mind. It's Romans 12 that we looked at last week. It's becoming a person who thinks according to the mind of God. It's becoming a person who is not in bondage to the reasonings and the philosophies of this world. Now, next week, we're actually going to look at what comes next. If you want to go ahead in the narrative, particular reasonings and philosophies that are particularly contrary to the mind of God are what come next in this narrative that we're reading. Go ahead and look at it, because we're going to look at it next week, and we're just going to square some things away. We're going to get some problems out of the way next week. It's the new normal. I don't expect miracles to break out. I expect God's normal to break out. I expect God's plan, what it's always been, what is absolutely normal and to be expected, that's what I'm believing is breaking out in the world right now. Not something miraculous and crazy. I'm looking for God's kingdom for the restoration of his original plan is what's breaking out (laughs) in this world. That's normal. (laughs) That's what's supposed to happen that's breaking out in the mission field and here at Little Chapel. Let's pray. I thank you so much, Father, for your revelation. I thank you that you have always had a good plan and that you are not a God that must be proven. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength of faith that we would cease testing you and begin believing you with a mighty belief that allows your kingdom to break out as you have always seen it. Father, give us your eyes so that we see like you do, and your understanding so that we understand like you do. Fill us with your spirit so that we are the salt that is full of flavor, setting this world free, setting people free, healing homes and healing people. And I praise you, Lord, that you have taken us into an age of repentance. Will you bring a spirit of repentance where our mind is changed? Help us become a people that are free from atonement, Lord. Help us 
quit trying to atone and help us become a people of repentance. Change our minds so that we are no longer contrary to your mind. We love you, Jesus. Amen.